Shalom everyone, this is Shomer Man with your Parsha GYS. This week's Torah portion, Ve'et Chanan, will be titled Ve'et and the Aleph Tav Canon. Because if you really look at this week's Torah portion, the majority of our daily mitzvot and observance are found in this week's Torah portion. Like the mezuzah, the shema, the tefillin, and any one of the given ten mitzvot. And uh, even passages that allude to Mashiach's words about, you know, what must I do to attain eternal life? And he says, what does the Torah say? Passages like that, the answers to that are found in this week's Torah portion. Without further ado, let's say the opening bracha and get going with Ve'et Canon. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-torah, amen. Amen. Hashem, may you flood us with your fire and with your water, and cleanse us and purify us and attach us to the lapid. And overflow us with your living waters through Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. So, really, uh, just going to take the gloves off this week. And we're just going to hit a lot of big points uh, in this week's story portion and do some story time. So, uh, this recording is just, I'm not going to follow any rules with taking breaks and cutting segments and all that. So, Straightway we shall go. So I want to open up with Hebrews because, you know, we never really get into that too much is the common consensus, but we are now. So Hebrews chapter three, starting in verse seven. This is courtesy of G. Shekel putting together some drops about the faith that we place in Hashem. And with that faith, we follow Torah. And so the faith and Hashem and following his Torah are inseparable. You know, there's this idea that, you know, once we place our Amuna and Mashiach Yeshua and we're found in Hashem, then that's all we need to do. Nothing could be further from the truth. And the thing about that is that teaching is based off of doctrine and theology that is centuries removed from the context in which we find belief in Hashem. What do I mean by that? I mean, for example, if you are entering into knowing the Messiah, when you come to know him, he brings us into covenant. And if you enter into covenant, then the covenant has parameters. It has circumstances, it has conditions and things like that. And it's a covenant of unconditional love, yes, but there are things that need to happen and take place. For example, if you are in a household, in order to remain in that household, you have to abide by the household rules. Now that's simple for us, but why do we make it so different when it comes to Hashem? Because entering into Mashiach, we're entering into his house. 
because you realize the dwelling place of Hashem, the unification of Hashem is found in Mashiach. And so that's where it becomes a problem when we try to, uh, when not necessarily us, but when anyone tries to discredit Messiah Yeshua for who he is, it's just kind of like, wait, wait, we're talking about Hashem's dwelling place here, you know? And the ideal concept of Hashem making his dwelling with us and among us, that is what Mashiach Yeshua embodies. And so we have to really take that into consideration when we say that we believe in Messiah Yeshua, because if we're not walking in covenant, we are by default nullifying our belief. And there's one thing to walk in covenant and not know that you should be following Torah, like upholding the mitzvot and, and doing that, like keeping Shabbat and celebrating the different festivals of Hashem, because there's eight of them. There are eight of them. And when you do that, you, um, you know, that's one side of it. But if you say you believe in Mashiach and you do not celebrate his festivals, you do not eat kosher, you do not wear zizit if you're a guy, you do not dress as a nude, you know, it's like, what kind of covenant is this? And uh, my heart really broke as I was speaking with my co-workers, you know, just various ones that, you know, the J-E-S-U-S uh, person that has been portrayed by the church and you know, uh, common media and uh, things is not true. It's a false image. And it hurt my heart because it's like it was through that false image that I came to Torah. So it was like, so something that was false brought me to something that was true. Something that was death brought me actually into life. So I was like, okay, that was that was healing. But the only problem is a lot of people are stuck in death today that aren't coming alive. They aren't waking up. They aren't transitioning out of that. And so, namely, the fact that JC is placed on t-shirts, he's bumper sticker uh, quotes, and, um, you know, this mentality of as long as you believe, you can do whatever you want. You have to seek him with your heart, and you need to know that it's not about works it's like that's all false because let me just give you an example i'm gonna go to yeshiyahu chapter 53 and i brought this up before but i just think it's super important to start here as i put us into context of what we are discussing so when you go to yeshiyahu 53 verse 2 for before him he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Listen to this phrase. He was not well formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance did not attract us. People despised and avoided him. A man of pains, well acquainted with grief. Like someone from whom people turned their faces, he was despised. We did not value 
him. So that flies in the face of post pictures of him on my wall, make statues of him and put him in my house or um, really Facebook post everything about him and uh, the different groups um, of social gatherings that are done in quote unquote his name that are bajillions and trillions of people. Just from these two verses, that was Yeshiyahu 53, 2 through 3, just from those two verses alone, that nullifies the fact that Mashiach has this big following, that he's number one, highly popular and uh, tabloid worthy, so to speak, because everything about him, according to this, which we know is Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David will be the esteemed reigning king. And Mashiach Yeshua combines the two Mashiachs. The two Mashiachs are actually one, just like the two tablets. So we get that. But just saying as far as what's being uh, presented is absolutely crazy right now. So uh, heartbreaking, but that's really the plain fact and the plain truth. There's no need to get into opinion on that, but... It's just kind of like, wow, like that's false. But the beautiful thing about that is, is we've seen this before. This is everything Yosef did to draw out holy divine sparks like he did when he was sent to Mitzrayim. Because if you look at Yosef, you'll get a picture of Mashiach ben Yosef. If you look at Moshe, you'll also get a picture of Mashiach ben Yosef. You know, so... Yes, types and shadows and things like that. But there are specific things that Yosef did. Number one, you, you have to know, he circumcised all the males in Egypt. When the famine came, if people wanted to eat, he circumcised them. And, and they had to get circumcised, which made them uh, the beginning of the household of Hashem's faith. Slika, if you go back to... Abraham and Bereshit, what did Abraham do? You know, I always say, you know, what did Abraham do? You know, look to the rock from which you were hewn, the well from which you were dug. You know, Abraham and Sarah, look at them. They went through making converts and it didn't matter who you was. If you were a grandsister, you got converted by Abraham if you chose. So, I am definitely insinuating, inferring that the way that Yosef uh, carried himself in Mitzrayim was because he looked to his father, Abraham, who circumcised the nations to bring them into the household of faith. And Abraham circumcised all of his servants. You know, he circumcised himself, his son, you know, uh, his slaves and things like that. And so you look at Yosef doing the same thing because technically, if it, uh, everything but the throne uh, was the only distinction between um, Yosef and Paro, you know that was the only thing that separated them. But other than that, Moshe or Yosef and Paro were pretty much the same. So if you've seen Yosef, you've seen Paro. Like that is the common consensus on the details and the information. So. You know, just go back through those sections of Bereshit and read that. You know, it's just 
That's Parsha Miketz and Parsha Vayigash and Parsha Vayaki. All the sources that are contained in there, uh, simple Rashi's and Humashim will bring that up, you know, and it's like the name he was given was Zaphonat Paneach, which is not the name of Yosef, which is why the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that rose to the throne and to rulership in Shemot chapter one, he did not know Yosef because everyone only knew Zaphonat Paneach. And so it's just kind of like not knowing the true name causes there to be some issues. First of all, because you don't understand his people, you don't understand his ways, and you don't understand his character, his background. And so with this power that rises that doesn't know Yosef, he doesn't know anything about the one who came from Yisrael, the one who came and fed the world, the nations, and brought them into the covenant with Hashem through circumcision. Like he doesn't know any of that. He just knows that Mitzrayim is thriving, but there seems to be an influx of these Jews, and they're probably going to try to kill us because they outnumber us and uh, all of that. So anyway, just thinking about the fact of Yosef circumcising the Egyptians to give them food, to give them bread, which remember Torah is a bread is a euphemism for Torah. And so he was circumcising them so that they could receive Torah. So if you think about Mashiach Yeshua, he's supposed to circumcise our hearts, which for those of us who do follow him, he has. So if you are any so uh, any at any level, at any point drawn to Mashiach, drawn to the Torah, have this heart for Hashem, you know, filled with his Ruach HaKodesh, really seeking him in all your ways. That's because you have a circumcised heart. So Yosef is feeding you bread right now. You know, he's feeding us bread. So that picture is seen. So that's what was happening for the world through Zaphonat Paneach, i.e. the type and shadow of Mashiach Yeshua. Now, what was he doing to the Yehudim? Namely, to his brothers and to his his Abba, you know, and their families. He was uh, doing all of this, uh, what on the surface is definitely seemingly nonsense. It's like so far from Torah that it doesn't make any sense, which is the whole background of why they would look at Yosef and be like, he can't be Jewish. Like he can't be you know, our brother, our long lost brother that we killed, that we thought, you know, was not alive. And he apparently is somehow alive. This cannot be him. Furthermore, this has to be some kind of Egyptian that the Paro has hired to torment us, basically, you know, and it's just kind of like, that's intense if you think about it. Because what are we seeing today? Like, oh, JC can't be the Messiah. And it's like, you're right. JC can't be the Messiah, but Yeshua HaMashiach can be. And you already know his names because they're delineated uh, in Talmud. They're delineated in Torah and in our Siddurim. You know, we're praying the name of Yeshua like three times a day, if not more, just from doing the Shemona Yesrei alone. And not to mention the concealment of the name Yeshua in the Elenu. So literally each prayer ends in the name of Yeshua. 
And you can correlate that to the three times that Yeshua drew out of Kepha the confession about loving him. Because remember, Kepha denied Yeshua three times. And with the redemption, with the tikkun that happened, you know, Mashiach Yeshua asked Kepha three times, do you love me? And he was like, yes, I do. You know, I do. You know, and it was just like that was restoring him. And so you think about daily confessing Yeshua, like literally the name Yeshua comes up in all these prayers and comes up in so many different passages. And for him to be confessed three times a day by people who don't even know him, it's just kind of like how amazing and beautiful is that? But back to Zaphonat Paneach, when Yosef's brothers see him, they're like, Zaphonat Paneach, like Egyptian, what is the deal? Yosef doesn't make it any better because he starts doing like he's a diviner. You know, he takes his silver goblet and it's just like, this is our master silver goblet. He uses it for divining. And it's just kind of like, why is Yosef divining? Like, what are you talking about? But he's playing around. He's just like, oh, I'm sensing by my cup that uh, you guys have a younger brother. And they're like, uh, yeah, his name's Benjamin. And he's with his father. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was feeling that. So you need to go get him. And uh, one of you need to stay here to make sure, you know, and it's just kind of like, wait, what? You know? And so with that being said, through trying to get Benjamin to come down, then it's like Yehuda has to step up and fight for his brother now. And this was the one who wanted to sell Yosef. And so it's no coincidence that Yehuda Iscariot is the one who sold Mashiach Yeshua because Yehuda originally wanted to sell Yosef. So there's that. So while all this that transpired caused Yehuda to change his ways, to change his actions, which is called Teshuva. So to go back and rectify that which was in need of repair. You know, you think about when Hashem says do something and we don't do it. Um, I just got sidetracked. My sources are open here. So I'm just going to read this, by the way. So swerve. Tor explains that the Torah regards an unnecessary or false oath in Hashem's name akin to the denial of Hashem. Since an oath in the Almighty's name implies my words are as true as he is. All right, back to our regular scheduled programming. All right, but anyway, so taking our past actions that are in need of being rectified, it's like that's the essence and the ultimate um, example of Teshuvah. So if you weren't keeping Shabbat for like however long, and you now enter into keeping Shabbat, that's called teshuva. If you weren't eating kosher or, you know, studying Torah or obeying any of the mitzvot, and now you start doing that, that's called teshuva. And since no man knows the time or the hour of the coming of Mashiach, but we also don't know the time or the hour of our own death and end of existence in this plane of life, you know, um, we're exhorted by the Chazal to make Teshuvah at every moment. So we need to be looking for ways to rectify previous mistakes and errors, like constantly. 
you know, like the eyes of Hashem that search the earth looking for those who serve him. We need to be searching our own self, examining our own lives and our own circumstances and looking for ways to serve Hashem. And so, yes, I just correlated our bodies to the land, but there are so many different correlations to the land that it's just uh, a lot for us to try to land on right now. So just going to keep going. But anyway, Yosef is meant to draw out Teshuvah. And you think about Mashiach Yeshua's name being covered up and given this Roman name. It's like he's doing this to draw Teshuvah. So with all of the craziness that's going on, if we're truly seeking after him, because I mean, how much exposure does he have truly, you know, by this false name and this false caricature that's placed upon him? You know, and Hashem was totally fine with this. This is the only way this happened. This is the only way centuries and centuries have gone by with believers following Hashem, but not really being Torah observant and hastening the redemption and entering into Eretz Yisrael with the rebuilding of the temple, the gathering in of the exiles. You know, you think about how that has transpired or hasn't transpired. And yet we have this split between Judaism, we have Christianity, we have Islam and like everybody is talking and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, well, you know, Hashem is one, not three, you know, and not not all this crazy Protestant denomination method Methodists or. You know, all this kind of reform. Yep, picking on the reform too now. Here we go. And it's just like, um, you know, Messianic, Hebrew root, all that kind of stuff. That's not that's not the true and pure Torah. The true and pure Torah is what Mashiach taught us. Which, by the way, in Matit Yahu 28, Mashiach tells us that we need to go out to the nations and teach them everything that he has taught us and i think that if we really think about what did he teach us he never taught us anything of christianity you know he never taught us anything of you know reform judaism or messianic judaism he taught us pure torah as it came from the mouth of hashem as given on mount sinai and so with everything that's going on, it's beautiful opportunity for us to hold up the flame of Lapid to all of the sources that are out there, all of the teachings that exist in the world today to draw out. It's like moths to a flame, you know, that's what it should be like with the proselytes. You know, we're just walking around holding up the torch, baseless love, walking around with the torch. And when we're doing that, people start to realize I don't have to front anymore. I don't have to put on this facade to be accepted. Even us ourselves, we can be fully at home and fully comfortable with who Hashem has created us to be because we're doing and we're existing as he created us to exist. And we're doing what he has called us to do when we do this. You know, so we can be at home in our own bodies and cause other people to be at home in their own bodies because nobody has to front. Nobody has to perform anymore. We are just who we are. 
you know, um, our talents and our giftings flow out, you know. So if you dance, if you sing, if you rap, if you draw, if you cook, you know, if you are, yeah, I mean, get you some, a fighter, you know, it's just like you do that with a level of respect and honor that goes far beyond the ethics of this world. You know, you are Torah based, you know, so you're not going to do anything that's going to violate that with what you're called to do with what your mission and purpose in life is. And so you're just doing that. You're just who you are. You have so much joy because you're doing that, which brings you joy, you know, as well as bringing joy to the father because you're walking in truth, because you're not walking in a lie. You're, you're holding up the Torah and you're doing what you're supposed to do. And as you're doing that, people are being drawn. All the nations are being drawn, you know, and so you don't have to go on street corners and go interrupt somebody's day and try to make them have this huge life changing decision when they may be going through uh, very, very hard times where decisions like this do not need to be taken into consideration at the moment. You know, as Kohelet teaches us, there is a time for everything, you know, so let people have their time. And focus on Hashem's time. You know, that's what I really love about Mashiach Yeshua is he stayed on time to everything. And I grew up with the phrase that he may not come with you when you want him, but he'll always be there on time. And the only thing with that is that's Jewish because it's called Moed, an appointed time, Moed. Everything is a Moed with Hashem. And Mashiach literally embodied that. That's why in um, Matityahu 11, when he gets to Miriam and Martha and they're like, our brother Lazarus, he's dead now. Thanks a lot. You know, you didn't show up if you would have came sooner. And he's like, that wasn't the time for me to be here. You know, so with that being said, I'm here now. This is when I'm supposed to be here because I'm the life and the resurrection. So everybody's about to stand by, forget you some. Here we go. And, you know, the beautiful picture that that paints. And um, if you think about us going through life, staying in Hashem's time frame, his appointed time. Yes, we're hastening the redemption. But though Mashiach tarries and delays, you know, because Hashem would be delaying him, he wouldn't be delaying, by the way. It's important to know. That's why he says only the father knows. The son of man doesn't even know when the time or the hour is for him to return on the clouds of glory. So, yes, we're speeding that up, but we're staying in the framework that Hashem has laid out for us that, you know, we're keeping Shabbat. You know, we're celebrating the Pesach. We're observing Rosh Hodesh, you know, and all these things. And as we're doing that and living our lives full of Amuna and full of Torah, that is the concoction and the formula for bringing about the redemption to the four corners of the earth. So, long introduction to Hebrews chapter 4. So, or sleek out Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, 7 through chapter 4. Okay, but we're not going to go through all of that. We're just going to read a little snippet here. Moshe and the children of Israel were preached the Besorah. In the wilderness, but they perished 
were they condemned for the f for failing to follow every point of the law? No, it was due to a lack of amuna. So you think about what is going on. Like you have the Basora, if you have Mashiach being given at Har Sinai, and there was this whole thing about the golden calf, you know, the slander of the land by the spies, the rebellion of Korak, the incident at Baal Peor, all these different things that occurred. It's just like, but everything is right here. And the same thing is going on today. Everything has continually occurred, but the Torah is right here. Yeshua is right here. He's in every generation, you know, and it's just kind of like, what's the what's the deal? So if you look at first Yochanan two, verse four, it says here, um, well, I'm going to give you a, a synopsis of it and then we're going to get into it. There is a duality of the Torah and its multiplicity of purpose. One function of Torah is to show man how sinful he is and that he stands condemned before a righteous God. But I know there is no condemnation for those who are in Mashiach. Well, what is being in Mashiach? That's being in Torah, right? So continuing on, it says this is not all the Torah does, however, only by trusting in Hashem for salvation, which would be Yeshua. So only by trusting in Hashem for Yeshua and agreeing to walk in his ways, man can escape judgment. So there you go. There's no condemnation for those in Mashiach because they're walking in observance. So I'm going to go to first Yochanan chapter two, verse four it says anyone who says I know him, but isn't obeying his mitzvot is a liar. The truth is not in him. I'm just going to keep reading. But if someone keeps doing what he says, then truly love for God has been brought to its goal in him. See, that's the goal for us to keep doing what he says, for us to keep making teshuva after we make teshuva. That is the goal, because as we do that, think about the way that the letters were engraved into the Torah. So much so that they were pierced through the sapphire tablets. The letters were pierced all the way through. Think about the stone of the sapphire and what that took. That took this constant pressure, this constant piercing, this constant um, carrying your crucifixion stake, so to speak, of action for the engraving to go all the way through. You know, we talked about this in Bechukotai and in Parashachukat with the uh, the terminology of Cherut, which is freedom on the tablet, when it's Charut, which is the engraving on the tablet. And so our freedom comes from this constant renewal that we have. And um, I'm just going to kind of munch up some sources here real quick because we got um, a guy I like to call Rabbi G-Bomb. His name is Rabbi Yehoshua Abraham Greenbaum, and he is a Rebbe that is frequently quoted by G. Shekel. And then we have um, Lakute Sikot about um, this week's Torah portion. So putting those things together, 
talking about constant renewal. With this constant renewal, every day, we're, we're basically born again. And so if you think about, we do Modeani. It's because every night when we go to bed, we experience 160th of death when we sleep. And then when we wake up, that's 160th of the resurrection. And so, you know, there's that. And then when we dawn to feeling and to lead, you know, it's like that we're going through our personal mikvah time. Uh, by the way, with the hand washing, especially hand washing definitely uh, correlates to the waters of the mikvah. So shiny labor, all of that. And we do that every day. And then when we open the Torah and we say our bracha, it is as if we're for the very first time entering into Torah study. And so one has to constantly come to the word of Torah anew. Come to the word of Torah as if we were standing at Mount Sinai with the mountain on fire. Which, by the way, the mountain definitely is on fire because every word of Torah is a manifestation of Hashem. And so I know that kind of escalated quickly, but if you just really think about the beauty of that, you know, and Trugman brings down that the uh, the Beit HaMikdash is a uh, constant reminder of the Har Sinai experience. So one who would go to the Beit HaMikdash would, in a sense, be taking himself back to Har Sinai. And so here we are, constantly being renewed, constantly staying by the way, that was called staying young, according to Rabbi Jebom. So that's right here in First Yochanan. So then this, the rest of this verse, verse 5 in chapter 2 of First Yochanan, says, This is how we are sure that we are united with him. Verse 6. I love this verse. I'm about to highlight it real quick and highlight the peed flame blue. All right, a person who claims to be continuing in union with him ought to conduct his life the way he did. So how did Mashiach do it? That's how we need to live. He didn't live as a Sephardi. He didn't live as an Ashkenazi. He didn't live as a Moroccan or a Yemenite. He lived as a Lapid. What what is that? Because you just really threw your brand on there. No, it's not my brand. Lapid is called Torch, by the way, and it is the fire of Hashem being manifested in a human form, and that's what Mashiach is, and that's what we are doing. You know, so as best as we can, we try to line up with that, and so it takes constant renewal and and learning, and so. That's what you really want to try to get down to. You don't want to get stuck in the in the filters and in the funnels of today as it is expounded out with uh, hangups. Okay, you don't want you want to get away from the hangups. You want to go back to the first century when we first set foot in the empty tomb, and fifty days later. The Ruach HaKodesh manifests, comes down, tongues of fire, Torah given, just like it was on Har Sinai, but this time it's on Har Zion, Mount 
Moriah in Yerushalayim. And so um, that's where you want to go. You want to go there. Okay. Now, obviously, lots of things were in development at that time. And, you know, Baruch Hashem. But the essence of that time is pure Torah. You know, pure mitzvot observance. You know, there are midrashim that were available for commentary. There were the zugot, the different pairs that were uh, back and forth, like Hillel and Shemais and things like that. And you know that um, there was the essence of the Talmud available because everything was handed out orally. You know, there was the inner workings of the temple. So lots of things were going on. And Mashiach himself, like, walked among us for like 33 years. So, speaking of that, I want to take us to Tehillim 116. Tehillim 116 verse 15 is this um, verse that's commonly said to be precious in the eyes of Hashem is the death of his pious ones. Now, verse 15, when you really look at it, it says Yachar Be'ene. And the word Yachar actually means grievous. But the word is a homiletic for the word for precious. So you can, um, like when we do the Bracha for the Talit, stand by. Bringing in extra sources. All right, here. So in our Shakarit service. You know, the uh, amazing Hassan, our Spider-Man Avenger, he um, has a beautiful song about this, but I'm not going to sing it because I'm not the amazing Hassan. But uh, here's the phrase in here. It is, let's see here. Boom, 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 boom. Ma yakar chazdeka Elohim. How precious is your kindness, O God. So, Yachar is precious and Yachar is also grievous. So, that which is grievous and that which is precious is pronounced the same in Ivrit. This should teach us something. That if we're having struggles, we're having things that are causing us to wring our hands and just freak out. We need to understand that that is a beautiful, precious time. Why is it precious? Because we're in the eyes of Hashem. And Hashem is not surprised by anything that we're going through or anything that we have gone through and anything we will go through. And so when you get to that point, which is definitely a challenge, I definitely get that. But when we get to that point, Think about this. Think about wrapping yourself. Let's wrap ourselves in the light of Yeshua. When we wrap ourselves in Mashiach Yeshua, we're finding rest for our weary, weary souls. You know, I think about the moment in time that I get to have every morning when I wrap my tallit. And I say this, Bracha, because you realize you say this prayer, the Maya Kar. You wrap the tallit around your head and your body and you recite this. And this is after you've already made your declaration of the zitzit and fulfilling the mitzvah and saying the bracha over it. 
now you're just taking that time and you're like, Hashem, I'm wrapped up in you. So when that happens, you can really transpose that thought over your challenging times. And I want you to go ahead and challenge all of us to do that. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of uh, mind blowing, uh, especially for thinking about how tough situations can be sometimes things that make us angry or things that frustrate us and we just take a moment and go Hashem I'm wrapped in your light Elohim. you know it's just like wow how precious is your kindness oh God because you know chesed is, is such a beautiful thing and it's just like let's just get to that okay so Back over here, I'm in the Midrash Tehillim, Sefer Yarok, and um, it says the homiletical reading of the verse is precious in the eyes. It says, when we suppress our drives and urges, we kill our animalistic, selfish soul. That's what Hashem sees. He sees that. Then it says, God cherishes the sacrifice. Thus, the death of his precious or the death of his pious ones is precious in the eyes of God. That's from Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak of Lubavitch and Sefer Hama Amarim. All right. So the other thing I want to go back to Tehillim 9511 here because we're talking about uh Hebrews chapter 3 and basically having our Torah observance, you know, with our faith in Hashem and, and not failing in that as we are receptive to the Torah. And in 95, 11, 10 and 11, actually, of Tehillim, it says, they do not know my ways. I vowed in my anger. That phrase says the mistake of the generation of the Exodus was not only to anger God, but to accept his decree that they would remain in the desert. Okay, so that was a mistake. God therefore says to us, do not be like those who did not know my ways, for I vowed in my anger, had they repented and beseeched me, with all their might, I would have forgiven them. You too should do so, and I will expedite the redemption if you are meritorious. That's from the Yavets, footnote 40. It says also in Vayikra Rabbah 32.2, and Eitz Yosef, God says, in the eyes of the people, I am angry but not in my eyes. As it is written, I vowed in my anger. When a vow was taken in anger, it can be annulled. God therefore made the this oath and what appeared to be anger so that it could be annulled. It seems that this is how Imre Yosher to Vayikra Rabbah understands the metaphor of the king and his son. God had vowed 
that they would not enter his resting place, i.e. the tabernacle in the desert. And again, remember his resting place, the tabernacle. We talked about Mashiach Yeshua because he, he, by the way, says something greater than the tabernacle is here. So um, there's that. And then it says, but he left open the possibility of their entering Yisrael where a new tabernacle and temple would be rebuilt. So just think about the fact of us really placing our Amunah in him and really walking in Yeshua. I mean, that is the redemption. You know, it is just like, wow, like that is available for every tribe, every tongue and every nation. So there's that. Um, footnote 39 over here, it says the Talmud cites a debate about whether the generation of the Exodus will merit to see the world to come, quote unquote, my resting place. According to the view that they will see it, the words in my anger are seen as a qualifier. God says, I swore in my anger, but have changed my mind. Sanhedrin 110b. So there's that. All right. So moving right along here, I want to go into this understanding about entering into the land because there is a part in this week's Torah portion where Moshe is allowed to see the land, but he's not allowed to enter it. So Shonuf Pincus brings this down. He says that the Chassam Sofer's interpretation of the statement from Hakadosh Baruch Hu, ascend to the top of the cliff and raise your eyes westward, northward, southward, and eastward, implying that the Kedushah of Moshe's gaze should affect the four corners of Eretz Yisrael. So just from his eyes looking at the land, it would it would affect the four corners of Israel. And then it keeps going like it's okay. He says that it is apparent that Eretz Israel shares both of these virtues. On the one hand, she enables a person to appreciate the greatness of the creator. As the Rambam explains, Vayikra 18.25, all other lands are under the supervision of the ministering angels, whereas Eretz Israel is unique in that she is under the direct supervision of Hakadosh Baruchu alone without any intermediaries. It is precisely for this reason that the Gemara from Baba Batra 158b states, the heir of Yisrael makes one wise. So that's uh, intense. A person who lives in Eretz Israel is able to attain wisdom of Torah, which is the greatness of the Creator. So, on the other hand, Eretz Israel instills in a person a sense of humility, which is Anava. Anava is how you say humility. And so, it says that... Alright, it says that... The Zera Kodesh, which is the Shelach, writes that this 
is the reason the land was called Eretz Canaan, a name that comes from the Hebrew word for submission. So if you think about humbly submitting, humbly submitting, and then contemplating and appreciating the greatness of our creator, those represent the two eyes of Moshe gazing upon the land. So him looking at the land imbued the land with those two specific things. And so he doesn't stop there. Then it says, okay, so let's see here. Okay, HaKadosh Baruchu is conveying to us that he constantly imbues Eretz Israel with two aspects of Kedushah emanating from the eyes. Thus, a person is capable of serving Hashem with both perspectives, recognizing the Almighty's greatness and recognizing one's own lowliness and insignificance. Based on this criterion, who is superior to Moshe Rabbeinu? Well, we all know the answer to that as Lapid, but we'll keep going over here. It says he explained both perspectives to perfection. On the one hand, Hagadosh Paruku attests, Bami Bar 12.8, mouth to mouth do I speak to him in a vision and not in riddles. And at the image of Hashem does he gaze. Here we see the degree of his perception of the greatness of the Almighty. Yet the Torah attests of his humility and sense of insignificance. Bami Bar 12.3, now the man Moshe was exceedingly humble more so than any person on the face of the earth. So now, Moshe Rabbeinu, being so humble, Moshe believed that he had not yet grasped the greatness of the Almighty and his own lowliness and insignificance. For this reason, he besieged HaKadosh Baruchu to allow him to enter Eretz Yisrael so that he could grasp these two vital realities in keeping with the nature of the land. So he emphasizes this desire by saying, please let me cross and see the good land. He specifically says, let me see. He expresses his desire to serve Hashem by seeing with both of his eyes. The Chasim Sofer interprets these words, Rav Lecha, which means, uh, let's see, go back, go back. Great going, basically. Uh, it says that, he interprets these words, HaKadosh Baruchu informs Moshe that his Kedushah surpasses the Kedushah of Eretz Israel. And furthermore, I want you to influence Eretz Israel with the Kedushah of your two eyes. Thus, everyone who enters the land will be able to serve Hashem with the perspective of both eyes. Cast your gaze upon the entire land and imbue Eretz Yisrael with the Kedushah of your two eyes. So was just uncalled for. And um, I was just going to look up Rav Lach real quick. For some reason, let me find that. Stand by. Oh, here we go. It is too much for you. Okay, so Rav Lach basically talking about um, the prayer of Moshe towards Hashem. So, or Slika, 
This is what Hakadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe. It is too much for you. Your Kedushah exceeds the Kedushah of Eretz Israel. Do not persist to speak to me of this matter, pleading to enter Yisrael. And so there's this whole idea that him looking upon the land surrounds it and imbues it with this light, with this holiness. And uh, I'm going to go back here because you got to hear this. I'm just going to read almost <laughs> like all of this article. So Hakadosh Baruchu, directive to Moshe, ascend to the top of the cliff, raise your eyes westward, northward, southward, and eastward. As the Qasim Sofer explains, Hakadosh Baruchu intended for Moshe to imbue the land with his superior level of Kedushah by beholding it. Now the Arizal teaches and Sha'ar Hakavanot that Hakadosh Baruchu endows every Jew with an inner light, which is Or Penimi, and a surrounding light, which is Or Mekif. The inner light enters the person because he is able to tolerate its intensity, whereas the surrounding light is too intense for the person to incorporate it within himself. Therefore, it surrounds it from the outside. So the inner and the outer light. So it says, based on this, Arizal contends that this intense light that encircles a person fends off external harmful forces that are afraid to approach him. He writes, there is nothing that repels the klipot like the encircling light, since the klipot are unable to feed off of it or gain a hold of it. May we all have this outer light. Amen. Then it says, therefore, it stands outside and is not afraid of the klipot. So, B'nai Yisakar, Tishrei 107. Know that due to the illumination of the encircling light of all the external harmful forces flee. Devarim 28.10 Then all the peoples of the earth will see that the name of Adonai is proclaimed over you and they will revere you. It specifically says over you referring to the light that encircles a Jew. It is why they will fear you. So... With that being said, if you go back down, it says to encircle all four sides of Israel with the Kedushah of your gaze, you will see with your own eyes that you shall not cross the Yarden. It will be apparent to you why you cannot cross Eretz Israel, for you represent an Or Mekif. You represent an outer light so intense that the vessel cannot tolerate its presence internally. Now, that's important because when you go to the Hasidic insights of this week's parasha, the first thing out the gate, had Moshe himself led the people into the promised land, their entry would have been miraculous. They would have been led by the clouds of glory and the pillar of fire, and the nations occupying the land would have offered no resistance. Because see, that's the thing I love about Hashem is that we're equipped and we're ready for war, but the sword belongs to Esau. The voice belongs to Yaakov. We're supposed to use our voice. 
That's what Moshe represents. Moshe represents like the mouth. And that's why the mouth is reciting the mouth. Like, Devarim is called the mouth of the Torah. And Moshe is considered to be speaking these words. But remember, as the Kehert Humash brought down in the overview from last week, that even though Moshe is speaking these words, it's the Shekinah intertwined in his voice box that is causing him to speak this Torah. So his words are not his own, but his words are the words of the one who sent him. So Mashiach said that exact phrase. But I digress. If you think about all of that, it says, continuing in the Hasidic insights, this miraculous conquest would have been a direct continuation of the miraculous exodus from Egypt, which had been, which had stricken the nations occupying the land of Israel with intense fear. Because I don't know if everyone knows, there was never a point in time where people escaped Egypt. First off, you had to get past all of the guards. Then you had to get past all of the dogs. So there were these mystical um, statues or statues or guardians around the borders of Mitzrayim that would wet their tongue against anyone who tried to escape. Oh, you really don't want to leave here. You know, things are easy here. Things are convenient for you. If you go out there then, you know, life will be rough, life will be tough because you don't know, you know, what to expect and you don't have a lot of provision. And besides, you're living like a king here. And as you think about what these dogs would say to the people, that's exactly what's used in following Mashiach. It's like, oh, just follow him. You don't have to do anything. But it's like by default, if you're following someone, that means you're doing something. But anyway, you just kind of look at the fact, but you go, well, I want to be in true covenant. I want to walk in true Torah. It's just like, no, you don't want to do that. You know, you're going to mess up your life. You're going to lose money. You're going to be out of time. You're going to probably not see your native born family that you grew up with if they don't convert. Um, you won't be able to eat at your favorite restaurant. You know, you'll have to give up calamari. And I'm putting my personal business in the street right there because I used to love that stuff. And it's like, doesn't have fins, doesn't have scales, can't eat it. I won't eat it. I don't eat it, you know, kind of thing. And so it's just like stuff gets real. You know, how do you know you're really following the shim? It's like you're making real decisions you know like i am not eating my favorite food and it's just like yeah because hashem has given us his torah and so we live off of his word and i prefer hashem's food over this world's food any day so believe that know that and trust that so all this is going on the people are freaking out because a whole nation has left out of mitzrayim not just one person. And then it says uh, the land of Israel. OK, so there the nations are occupying the land. They're freaking out. It says the Jews proclaimed at the song of the sea. Nations heard and became angered. Terror gripped those who dwelled in Philistia. The chieftains of Edom became disoriented. 
Trembling seized the mighty men of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. All right, so that verse is from Shemot 15, 14 through 15. So, yeah, Moshe couldn't enter, needless to say, and he was allowed to look at it because he is going to cause the entry point to be made uh, secure for us because the Klepotes are not allowed to uh, enter. There is that. So now, what was actually going on on Har Sinai? So, talking to Yeshiyahu, he was telling me about, you know, speaking in tongues and things like that, things that he's learning about. And I'm like, get you some. Speaking in tongues is speaking in different languages, namely 70 languages. And it's just like, well, we learned about Moshe giving the Torah in 70 languages last week and devouring. And we also have seen this in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you can look at, let's see here, I've got a lot of tabs open. <laughs> All right, I got it pulled up somewhere. Let's see, I'm just going to open it myself. Tongues of fire. So it's Acts 2, chapter th or chapter 2, verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So the Talmudim are chilling. It says, suddenly the sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from Hashemayim, filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay, so tongues of fire are coming down. And verse 4. All of them were filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So we were talking about this concept. And I was like, so that happened at Mount Sinai. And we're like, okay, yes. Okay, so Torah is going out in 70 languages. Okay, this is beautiful. Because if you go back to Matit Yahu chapter 10... That says, uh, it's 10 verse 5. Think about this. Yeshua sent out his 12, instructing them, Do not go among the Goyim, and do not go into a city of Shomron. Balance that out with, <coughs> balance that out with um, Acts 1. <coughs> Sleeka. Acts 1 8. <clears throat> it says, But you will receive power and ability when the Ruach HaKodesh comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to tell people about me, i.e., Torah, because remember, Mashiach is the embodiment of Torah, the faith, and the obedience, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, which is Yehuda, and all of Samaria, which is Shomron. And even to the ends of the earth. So now, originally when Mashiach selected his Talmudim, he said, don't go to the nations, go to the Yehudim. But now, if they're a Yehudim, you don't need tongues because you have the holy tongue. And so, Hebrew, being a Lashon Kodesh, the holy tongue, you don't have to speak in tongue to a bunch of people who know Hebrew. So, Mashiach is like, yeah, just don't go to the nations. It's not time yet. Again, there's an element of time. 
But then you go to Acts 1, it's just like, well, now it's time. You know, the message has been preached and shown to Israel, but they have rejected and scorned. And so now let's go out and get those proselytes. So how are we going to do that? The Torah needs to be in every language so that we can make proselytes. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that the Torah was translated into English so that I can learn something. And uh, now that I'm learning Hebrew, I'm learning a little bit more of something. And it's just kind of like such an amazing Baruch Hashem. So Yeshiyahu and I are talking and we're like, wait a minute. So speaking in tongues is enabling us to speak other languages so that people can hear about God in their own language. Which, by the way, is the whole thing behind if someone is speaking in tongues you need to have an interpreter, especially if you're going to be doing it in a public setting. And then it's talking about tongues is also a private prayer language. It's just like, yeah, well, if you're praying in Hebrew and you don't completely understand it, you know, you still are allowed to pray in that because it's actually nourishing your soul. And read the front of your Siddur talking about praying in different languages and how Hebrew is the only language you're allowed to pray in without completely understanding every word because your soul understands but your your uh mind may not so uh there's that so anyway we were just kind of blown away because we're like this whole episode of speaking in tongues for everyone in acts chapter 2 is so that they can know yeshua the living torah the sapphire tablets so the sapphire tablets are going out, which is like the voice of Moshe in Parashat Devarim. And this is all to bring Messiah Yeshua to the nations. So it's just incredible on context. Because I was just wondering why of all times was Acts chapter 2 when tongues of fire were brought forth? And why is the congregation in Corinth the only congregation that's hearing about tongues and it's just kind of like amazing to even have any kind of uh reconnaissance on any of that so or cognizance sleek out so that was uh that was absolutely crazy and you know we were just thinking about the fact that hashem so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and he gave like he gave his he gave his torah he gave his only torah because he loved the world that much. And he made the Torah accessible in all the known languages. So that to the ends of the earth, all men could be drawn unto him. Because, you know, he said, if I be lifted up. So, I'm going to go to um, a swerve. Got some Midrash, get you some. Uh, from Va'et Kanan, page 64. Moshe warned the Yehudim, I foresee prophetically that after having lived in Eretz Israel for generations, you will become corrupted, worship idols, and do evil in God's eyes. I call upon two everlasting witnesses, heaven and earth. So heavens and earth are called everlasting witnesses. So when Mashiach in Matityahu chapter 5 says, unless the heavens and the earth pass away, the Torah will be forever. So read that in context. Matthew 5 verse 18. 
Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So you have everlasting witnesses, and Mashiach is like, unless those witnesses pass away, then uh, Torah is here. So Torah is everlasting is what I'm deducing from that. I mean, that's really the case because the Torah being eternal by default, it's not going anywhere. You know, because you think about the Torah existed before creation, but we'll learn about that in a little bit. It says that um, I call upon the heaven and earth to testify that I have forewarned you. You shall quickly be banished from the goodly land. Your days shall not be prolonged upon it. Quickly accords with God's perception for in his eyes a thousand years are but one day the expulsion took place 850 years after the exodus from Mitzrayim Moshe prophesied the 852 years wow just going back with the time frame here after living in the land for so long it's just kind of like you could even go two days you know and keep Torah and the perspective of Hashem, a day is a thousand years, you know, it's just kind of like, okay. But Moshe prophesied that 852 years after the exodus from Mitzrayim, the Jews would sin so greatly that they dis deserve utter annihilation. God, in his mercy, hastened the end by two years in order to prevent their total destruction. He destroyed the Beit HaMikdash instead of the congregation of Israel. By suffering exile, or who by suffering exile were allowed to survive. So our atonement for the temple being destroyed is this exile. And Hashem destroyed the temple so that he didn't destroy us. You think about the death of Mashiach Yeshua in that. is because Mashiach Yeshua is likened to the destruction of the temple when it comes to the crucifixion. And so because of that, you know, his chastisement brought about our peace by his stripes. We are healed. All that. Moshe prophesied, Hashem will scatter you among the nations wherever he leads you. You will remain few in number. You will be under the authority of men who serve images of wood and stone. Gods who do not see their worshipers. Tribulations. Do not hear their outcries. Do not consume their sacrifices or smell their pleasant odor or aroma. You will then personally experience the stark contrast between the worship of dead idols and the worship of the living God whom you forsook. So just taking a sailor on that because... Hashem destroyed the temple so that he didn't have to destroy us. And the only reason that was warranted because we stopped doing what we were supposed to do. Because we stopped listening to Hashem, we started taking suggestions as opposed to mitzvot. And it's just like, you can't do that. So the temple was destroyed because of that. All right. So now I want to read from Parsha Yitro because... Thinking about the sapphire tablets, sapphire tablets 
according to Rabenu Bakia. Rabenu Bakia drops the number. Okay, so the tablets were cubes, six hand breadths long, by six hand breadths wide, and six hand breadths thick. We have already explained in this calculation these identical measurements made the tablets equivalent to the king's seal that they had been inscribed with the ten mitzvot. So the seal of the king, according to the Hebrew letters um, book and understanding, is called a met. There's this whole thing about the teaching of the tav that it's the balance letter, it's the end of the olive bed and things like that. And the word tav itself is the word for mark. And so you think about that, it's just like, okay, the king seal is, you know, the two tablets. Tav, it's the mark. And why was Mashiach pierced? You know, why is he marked up? Because he looks like the tablets. And... um it was brought down to in another source that this height of six by six by six, that's like the height of an average Jewish man. So Mashiach being that way, just uh, uncalled for there. And then, um, so at the giving of the Torah, that's what's coming down in the hand of Moshe. Now, uh, Tosh Bites, Katan number 467 states, Know that all the actions and practices of the bride and the groom at their wedding are derived from the giving of the Torah, where Hashem acted like a Katan, and the Kala, or to the Kala, which was Yisrael. Now, there's this whole thing about the thick cloud and the darkness on the mountain at the giving of the Torah. It says, a thick cloud enveloped the mountain. Adonai bent the heavens until they reached Har Sinai, and his Kisei Kavod descended upon the mountain. It is surprising that the Torah was not given amidst bright and dazzling lights, but rather in the midst of a mountain obscured by dark clouds. The reason for this may be understood by a mashal, which is a parable. Preparing for his son's wedding, the king decorated the wedding canopy with black curtains. This is not what is usually done for a son's wedding. Exclamation point. The members of the royal household complained. The custom is to hang white curtains. There is a reason for my action, explained the king. The astrologers predicted that this marriage will break up in 40 days. I do not want people to think I was not aware of this in advance. Similarly, Hashem did not reveal himself to the congregation of Israel amid bright lights. Rather, he appeared in darkness and fire since he foresaw that 40 days after the giving of the Torah, they would make the golden calf. Throwing stuff. So I'm thinking about that with the uh, earthquaking and things that happened during the crucifixion of Mashiach. Let's go ahead and get into that. All right, let's look at um, Matit Yahu chapter 27, uh, verse 45. All right, here we go. So it says it was from the sixth hour 
darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now remember, that's golden calf time. That's eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil time and all that, right? So it says, about the ninth hour, Yeshua cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama savaktani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Esther also said this when she was walking through the uh, the hall of the palace of King Achashverosh. When she passed by the hall of idols, the Ruach HaKodesh departed from her. And so, like, she gave up the ghost at that point. And so, you have this idea here where salvation is being worked for the people, but it involves confronting idolatry, the departing of the Ruach HaKodesh, and all of that. So I keep going here. It says, And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Eliyahu. Immediately one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put a reed, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Eliyahu will come and save him. And Yeshua cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The veil of the temple was torn, and two from top to bottom. The earth shook, and rocks were split. The tombs were open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. They entered the holy city and appeared to many. So even at Mashiach's death, it was likened to the giving of the Torah because it was this darkness, it was this gloom, but yet this was salvation. This was the man being brought for us. And then 50 days later, Mashiach's Talmudim are together. They're in a room, they're making teshuva, and then they go out with the tongues of fire and they spread that. So that's the picture that we're trying to make here, and that's the tikkun of Shemot back during the giving of the Torah. So wanted to just point that out, that um, the darkness and the gloom and the clouds and all that, that's totally, totally following the pattern. All right here, um, just hit some quick jumps. Let's go with why it's more important to hear than it is to see. So this is from the Kehert Humash from the overview. It says, or is, okay, so it's like advantages of sight over hearing. There is also an advantage over hearing over sight. True, when we see something, our sense of reality of that which we see is stronger than when we only hear about it. However, this experience of certainty is solely due to the force of the experience and not to any work that we have done in refining our perception. Okay, so getting into self-refinement, and it says, uh, okay, refining ourselves. It is a certainty imposed upon us from without rather than one that solidifies gradually from within solidifies gradually from within this is the difference between seeing and hearing and so therefore 
its effect on us as people is all baked powerful is superficial and ephemeral once we are no longer looking at what we saw our experience of it begins to fade eventually becoming weak enough to be challenged so it's better actually for us to hear than it is to see and so you're talking about how the people are seeing the mountain on fire and things like that in this week's Torah portion but it's like it's better for us to hear you know and it's also better for us to hear and do so there's all that but we're in this for the long haul and you know um you want to pace yourself and take your time and this is not something to just really run out and swiftly do 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 you know that's why it says this this race is giving to the those who endure it's not given to the swift but to those who endure so remember that shabbat 88b rabbi yehoshua ben levi said what is the meaning of that which is written his cheeks are as a bed of spices as banks of sweet herbs his lips are lilies dripping with flowing myrrh song of song 513 so breaking down that verse this is what it says. It is interpreted homiletically from each and every utterance, like every word that proceeded out the mouth of the Father, that emerged from his cheeks, i.e. the mouth of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the entire world was filled with fragrant spices. And since the world was already filled by the first utterance, uh, it says, where was the room for the spices of the second utterance because the first utterance filled all of creation it's like so where's the second one gonna go so then it says hakadosh baruku brought forth a wind from his treasuries may the spices pass one at a time leaving the room for the constant or leaving the room sleek it was leaving room for the consequences of the next utterance as it is stated his lips are lilies shoshanim dripping with flowing myrrh each and every utterance resulted in flowing myrrh do not read the ver the word and the verse as shoshanim rather read it as shoshanim meaning repeat each repeat or utterance produced its own fragrance this is the same tractate that talks about uh, every word they uh, their souls left their bodies and that um, Hashem would return their souls to them and that they would rise again and the next word they heard their souls would leave their bodies again so basically what you're having here is a constant Akeda so when you listen to the voice of Hashem it's like being in an Akeda the Akeda because when the knife was presented before Yitzhak, as he was bound on the altar, it says his soul left his body. So we see that at Harsinai, as well as this beautiful, fragrant aroma. You think about the Habdala ceremony and things like that. And it's just like these smells so beautiful. So, Brigashem. Uh, there was just so much I really wanted to share and I want to make sure that I at least touch on everything and 
the stay young point from Rabbi G-Bomb that I wanted to elucidate. Not really elucidate. I just wanted to share this. He says, let's see here. Precisely, because it is so easy to fall, Moshe exhorts us again and again not to allow ourselves to grow old, not to forget, not to go astray. The regular return to the basics, reading a second time about the giving of the Torah, comes to teach us that we must constantly strive to renew ourselves and keep things fresh. And let these things that I am commanding you today be on your heart. They should not be in your eyes like an old edict that nobody minds, but like a new one that everyone runs to read. All right. So keeping everything new, keeping everything fresh, staying focused, cleaving and attaching ourselves to the lapid. I mean, all these many different things we really want to make sure that we're doing, you know, with Torah, with mitzvot, with our emunah, not ever getting to a point where we're just studying Torah, rote, mechanically, just praying rote and mechanically, you know, really coming from a place of love. May it be so. Um, One of the things that I absolutely have to share, this can be my last point. That, you know, Moshe was on the mountain for 40 days and Moshe was fighting up there. And I have been blessed to um, get this little uh, elucidation of the match that was going on up there. It's from what's called the Sinai Files, the Sinai Files. And this is a sci-fi fantasy version of the classic story of Moshe battles with the angels to receive the Torah by Zavi Freeman. Now I want you to know something. Who has gone into Hashemayim and brought Mashiach down? Romanos 10 and verse 6. Moreover, the righteousness grounded in trusting. Okay, so righteousness, euphemism for Torah observance, and grounded in trusting, which is our faith in Hashem, like believing in Yeshua. It says, okay, so the righteousness grounded in trusting says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to Hashemayim? That is to bring Mashiach down. Or who will descend to Sheol, that is to bring the Messiah up from the dead. I just had to stop. Who will descend into Sheol, that is to bring Mashiach up from the dead. What then does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Again, remember that those those two lights, the inner and the outer light, the Torah is in your mouth it's in your heart because if you have met moshe which would be torah you have heard from his mouth you've also um you've brought this into who you are you know so you're you're grabbing a hold of torah and in acts chapter 15 it talks about those who are new that are coming in that they are to refrain from blood sexual immorality uh idolatry and things strangled you know uh, meat strangled basically 
because the rest are going to learn in shul every Shabbat when Moshe is taught. So when you think about that, Mashiach was brought down by Moshe and he is brought up, you know, from Sheol, the place of the dead through his resurrection. And that's the power that is at work in us. And then it says the word is near you because we've drawn near to Hashem. He's drawn near to us. And so that happened through the work of Moshe as the shliach of the people to go up. And this is you look at um, Mashiach telling Miriam, don't touch me. I haven't ascended to the father yet after his resurrection. You know, he's going up to the father. No one's sending him, but he's going. Uh, also, quick thing to point out is the plea for the prayer of entering the land entering into rest so to speak that um mashiach did the same pleading in luke chapter 22 in the garden of gethsemane so gethsemane and the olive tav canon need to go next to each other like the beginning part about the supplicating before shem I pulled up uh, Legends of the Yehudim because in Legends 3.6, starting around, um, let's see here, 118, it goes into this whole, I, I literally think, because it just keeps going on and on and on, that it goes through all 515 of Moshe's prayers. And that's absolutely insane. I just want to give you a quick um, little synopsis of what he prayed and know that at some point Hashem was like, I need all the gates of prayer closed and uh, Moshe is going to be praying for a while. So everybody just sit tight. And uh, once he is done, then we'll reopen everything up and we'll be back to our scheduled programming. So. Programming just sounds like a weird word. So um, our scheduled broadcast. There we go. So back to our scheduled broadcast. But here's here's an example of what Moshe prays like. And you think about the fact that it's this contention. It's back and forth. Like not contention, but there's this, this challenge. You know, give and take back and forth kind of thing. And it's um, the beautiful thing to think about what must Mashiach have said to Hashem about letting this cup pass from me even though he had already agreed Mashiach Yeshua already agreed to be the sacrifice and to drink that cup when the time came he really pleaded to not have to and that's the same thing with Moshe is he knew he wasn't going to be able to enter to the land but during this fine time you know, he's like, but I need to pray for this. You know, I need to pray about it. And specifically because of his prayers, he gave merit to all of Israel and gave us the opportunity to be imbued with yearning to enter into the land. And so Trugman does a whole drop on that. But um, real quick, just Legends of the Jews 3, 6, 128. It says, O Lord of the world, again pleaded Moshe, will not you recall the time when you did say unto me, Come now, therefore I will send you unto Paro, 
that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Mitzrayim. Let them be led by me into their land as I led them out of the land of bondage. But to this God found a reply. Moshe, will you not recall the time when you did say to me, O Adonai, send, I pray you, send, I pray you, by the hand of him whom you will send. With the measure that a man uses, shall measure be given him. Then it says, I announce death to you with the word behold, saying, Behold, the days approach that you must die, only because you are a descendant of Adam, and whose sons I had pronounced death with the word behold saying to the angels behold the man is become as one of us to know to know good and evil and now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever so just a beautiful tie-in there about you know the different prayers that moshe would have prayed and how it's just this back and forth this is beautiful exchange about Moshe says this, but Hashem comes back and responds, you know, and it's just like, you get this picture of Hashem talking to himself. You know, it's like, should I do this? No, I really shouldn't do that because, you know, ABC. And then it's like, well, but there's this over here that would really, you know, not even be in conflict. So then Hashem is like, well, actually, if we go over here, you know, and it's like, it's just beautiful. You know, it seems like an argument, but it's actually literally for the sake of heaven. So, you know, we know the Chazal say that any argument that endures for the sake of heaven, it's just like, or any argument for the sake of heaven endures. So the example again, Hillel and Shammai, all their different back and forths because their arguments were for the sake of Hashemayim, they their teachings are allowed to be enduring. So that is that. Now, so back to this little uh, sci-fi script here, fantasy uh, fiction uh, based off a true story. He says, uh, this is a V Freeman, he says the Babylonian Talmud Shabbat 88b and the Midrash both mention the debate that occurred between the angels and Moshe concerning the Torah's appropriate recipient. They do this whole layout where it's like round one, round two, round three. So I'm going to pick up on round six, actually, because round six gets very, very interesting. It says Moshe hits where it hurts. Moshe was also hesitant about the next one. After all, it was certainly not PC. And he says, but the stakes were high. Moshe looked back down into the tablets and read, Honor your father and your mother. The Malachim saw what was coming. They began to wish they had never started all this in the first place. So his powerful voice shook the walls. Where are your mothers and fathers? Um, Moshe, we do not do that sort of thing here. We just dot, dot, dot. 
Moshe says. So you admit, Moshe lurched forward. You are creations of light. You have neither mother or father. The miracle belongs only to us. Only in our world is found the essence of the finite. Or, Slika, only in our world is found the essence of the infinite. Only in our world is reflected the most awesome essential power of the divine, the power to create being out of nothingness. Even the most sublime metaphysical intellects needed time to think about that. But Moshe didn't give him a chance. And now, see what else is written here. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. Is there then jealousy up here? Do you fight with one another? Do you struggle with an ominous darkness inside? Do you have any of these warped emotions that plague us below? This perverse drive to rebel against our very source of life and deny there is any authority besides or outside of our own? But Moshe, you take pride in this. And Moshe says, yes, because when we shall use the magnificent power of the Torah to resist, to redirect those nefarious energies to the channels of holiness, to overcome darkness and transform it into light, we shall then uncover in the cosmos the source of all being himself. For as he creates out of the void a being that feels absolute autonomy, we shall make the ultimate or we shall make that ultimate of being admit its nothingness. The angels were lost. Moshe's uh, eyes opened wide. Look below, he uttered softly. So in this back and forth contention, you know, there is this understanding that the Torah that is trying to the Torah that's being fought over during this whole time actually is uh, very powerful. It, it, it causes nothingness to actually become something. You know, it, it has the power to overcome our yetzahara, our warped thoughts, and all of our uh, just contrary ways to Hashem. So through the Torah, we're literally brought into obedience. Through the Torah, we're literally uh, made new in our thinking, you know, and our Yetzirah is subjugated to our service. So that only happens through the Torah. And so if you think about what Mashiach says in Luke chapter 9, that if any man follow after me, let him first deny himself and carry his stake. So we have to get rid of our own ideals, our own you know, uh, environment. We have to let that go. And that's tough and that's challenge, challenging. But that's the beauty of Torah is that we get to be made new and we get to be uh, made in the likeness of Mashiach Yeshua. So I pray this was a blessing for Parsha Ve'et Canon and that you truly take to heart everything that's going uh, everything is being related and shared with this week's Torah portion. I mean, binding ourselves to Hashem, who is truly one. Which, by the way, just last little 
quick thing. The Kehard Humash Hasidic Insights on Devarim 6.4 drops that Achad literally means a body with many members. Mashiach is called a body with many members. So now Mashiach, Echad, when we say the Shema, we're talking about Hashem is Echad, Hashem is Mashiach. Just another um, witness to that. But anyway, we have to come to the end of ourselves, follow after Mashiach, which would be being immersed in Torah, you know, having faith in Hashem. So if we're in Torah, we're in Yeshua. And if we're in Yeshua, we're in Hashem. I mean, that's Yochanan chapter 17, pretty much. So there's that. So, I mean, I just feel like there was just so much to share, but hopefully, you know, um, there has been illuminating insights uh, on this week's Torah portion. And, um, you know, I just really pray for us that as we hold up this flame of the Lapid, that we will go forth with much courage, with much enthusiasm and excitement, that we will continue to overflow in baseless love, and that we will head into this Shabbat, which is called Shabbat Nachamu, which is Shabbat of comfort. You know, we just went through Tishba Av, we just went through the three weeks, and the morning is over. We're building now. Mashiach is coming, you know, the festival of resurrection through Tuba Av and the 40 days of Shuva and Rosh Hashanah. That's all coming up, coming at us like a freight train. So, you know, it's beautiful that after everything, it's like after a storm, just that that beauty that you have, you know, the sun is starting to come out. You know, you see a rainbow in the sky, you know, if that ever happens and then the weather is a little cooler you know and it's just like man you know let our hearts be like the the ground that's all wet and hashem can mold it you know we can be clay in the hand of the potter so may we be vessels of torah may we hold up the flame of the lapid may we be consumed in the words of hashem and fire this cannon amen what do we know what do we know Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu Torah temet, Vekaye olam natabetokainu, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten ha Torah, Amen. Amen. Blessings over your Shabbat, and may have a Shavuot Tov. This is Shomer Man, signing out, and Shalom.